I feel that in Jersey we've got the unique opportunity and ability to really harness the good, but to do it in our own way. So we're not trying to NHSify the system. Um, we're not going to. We don't have the same constitutional standards, and we don't have the same framework. And our services aren't provided in the same way. There's a, a different island context. Um, but we we want to keep our links with the UK, and we don't want to lose those educational and that workforce flow. That was Group Managing Director for the Health Service, Rob Sainsbury, and I'm News Editor of Express, Fiona Potany. Unresolved bullying in operating theatres is affecting the care some hospital patients receive, with some staff apparently even unable to work in the same room as certain colleagues. That was the finding of a June 2021 report authored by Felix Choto, a specialist theatre nurse who spent four weeks assessing the challenges in Jersey's surgery services and found problems with culture, process and leadership. The report was never made public, but leaked to Express just as non-urgent operations began to resume after a months-long suspension due to non-COVID-related staff sickness. Much of that was to do with stress and anxiety in the workforce. But the apparent sickness in health doesn't only lie in theatres. There have been issues with morale reported across the service linked to both relationships with other staff and the crumbling working environment they're in. Other staff are nervous about wider sweeping changes in health, there are recruitment issues, and some are decrying the so-called NHSification going on. In this week's edition of the Bailiwick podcast, I put those concerns directly to Mr Sainsbury. Um, It's difficult, really. I think uh, any uh, review that highlights where you need to make improvements, we expected it to highlight where we needed to make improvement, Um, but it's difficult to hear. I think it's multi-layered. And so your opening comments about the pandemic, um, that's absolutely true. And um, our theatre staff are actually one of the very significantly impacted groups because they have they often have skills um, in anaesthesia support and often they are supporting critical care functions. And of course, at the beginning of the pandemic, that was the area that we thought would be most needed for this workforce. So they really had to step up to be prepared to work in critical care in the theatre services that could have had some patients with COVID. So um, it's been a stressful time for that staff group overall. That said, I think within the report, um, it it is highlighting what uh, feels like a cultural issue within the department. Um, It feels that it's been quite endemic and been there for quite a long period of time. Um, I've never worked in a healthcare setting that doesn't have professional tension. Um, You get that between doctors, nurses, social workers, you know, you train in a different way and you have different um, sort of uh, approaches to things, but you generally get to the same common ground and that usually revolves or should revolve around the patient. I think in this instance it's highlighting that we've had some long-standing issues, cultural problems that really need to be tackled and dealt with um, and that goes right the way from the, the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom. And I welcome the report for that because that's exactly what um, you want to learn. We've got to be a learning environment. Every healthcare setting has to be and it has to focus where your attention is needed. And it's done that. So if we just pick up on one of the uh, cultural issues there, you know, one thing that's pointed out in particular in the report is bullying. And we know that Mm -hmm. HR Lounge did a review of the entire government um, back in 2018 um, and that obviously found that the issues were very prominent back then. But now we're, we're three years on and we've got a reviewer um, for the theatre service in particular um, saying that that's still an issue now in, in 2021. So why do you think there are, in, in his words, a, a very high number of unresolved bullying cases currently in health? 
So I, th- I think there's a lot of uh, work needed in, in that area. We're working hard with our employee relations and, and with our HR support teams. Um, there are some historical cases. Some of those cases are, are complex. Um, and uh, J- Jersey is in a, a slightly different position to other organisations where you're able to you have breadth in terms of different hospitals, different sites, different functions that some can be, sometimes can be supportive in finding resolution uh, with time away, that's not quite as easy in a, a one hospital system and in a specialist staff group as well. So uh, it requires some specialist input and that's exactly what we've tried to deploy now. Um, the thing that was absolutely crucial for me is that we needed different clinical professional leadership. I, I, the, the, these are highly skilled, highly trained practitioners. Um, they, they don't work in a way that is managerially set. They work in a way that's set to processes and principles of patient care. And so they need clinical professional leadership to enable them to do that effectively. And getting strong clinical leadership is the thing that we've really focused on, supporting the teams so that they can actually then really start to focus on the improvement that's required in the department. Absolutely. I mean, leadership is paramount, and that's that's a topic that I'd like to um, return to um, mm-hmm. later. Um, but just focusing on uh, this bullying um, situation for a moment, can you just lay out what is the, the current path for someone that might have a complaint? You know, how yeah. quickly are you able to come back to them with a solution? We've heard cases that have been dragged out for a very long time. We, we've been told by professionals who... who work in the department in the health department now or who have previously worked in the department that they've been told to provide evidence stretching back months but naturally people want a solution as soon as possible i i I completely understand that and i I think that historically it's been too slow and um, something that we've moved to very quickly is to have a quicker five-day um set fact-finding initiative so that you can really try to get underneath, underneath something quickly and get to the position and understand where people are coming from and why they've got a grievance or they feel bullied or they or feel harassed. Um, and that is proving to be quite successful. That's helping. So we're getting some speed. But we still have some historical cases that uh, you know have been in process for a long, long time. Um, and that's not good for anybody. And that's certainly not good in a, in a department um, of that nature. I think that there's a lot of learning that's come out from, from that. Um, what I would say... Uh, I appreciate people probably are fed up of hearing about the pandemic, um, but the pandemic has required a different way of working in health and care systems and settings. We are not used to working in a uh, command control structure, and we're not used to working in a disciplined structure. We're a non-disciplined service, we're multi-professional services. So we're used to having debate, discussion, looking at evidence, informed decision-making that is very broad in in how you capture to get to the point of decision. In the pandemic, that has been really challenged because you've had to make very quick decisions. You've had to do things that sit outside people's comfort zones, working in different settings, um, working differently. And I I think that's been a real challenge for our healthcare workers. Do you think that might have sort of fractured some relationships? I I think it's probably exacerbated. What was probably already underlying is is how it feels to me. There was already clearly a problem um, and clearly a cultural change that was needed. When you then add in the context of the pandemic, it's also difficult to recruit to workforce, and globally it, it is, that those multi-layers then really create a tension. And I feel that we got to that point, and that's what the report is really highlighting for me. You mentioned um, in Jersey dealing with a, a bullying complaint might be a bit more difficult given that they yeah. can't sort of have that time out. Yeah. We've, we've heard from people as well who've, been, uh, who've told us of colleagues that have moved departments, but then they still bump into them in the corridor, yeah. which can be quite a stressful experience. 
Is there a way around that? Have you managed to find a solution? So I, I think there is. Um, so this is a, a tension throughout um, services in Jersey. I, I think this, for me, I've been here for nearly four years now. It, you are in a very small environment, and so the person that you might have conflict with could be your neighbour, your former friend, somebody you see in M&S every Saturday. You know, it's very difficult um, to, to not be in contact with people here. And at times, I think that has led to avoidance. And at times, people don't want to have a difficult conversation. Often people try and choose an easy route, and that often creates even more tension or a quick solution like let's move people. And that's not really getting underneath what the problem is. And, and my experience in, in other areas where we've had this, this problem, it's not just a Jersey issue, is I think as long as you approach things with... Um, honesty, integrity and transparency to try and resolve the issues. I think you get a better outcome. I think first and foremost, that has to be the approach that we take. You've got to trust in the process, you've got to trust in people, but you've got to allow people to, to you know, give their story and to treat their story you know, impartially and look at what your solution could be. Let's just uh, touch on, you know, what the net effect of um, some of these issues can be. Mm. So bullying, for example, as well as um, the impact of the, the stressful environment of the pandemic, that can all lead to morale issues. And we know that there are certainly a lot of difficulties there. We had a recent statistic, 43% of health staff sickness days are related to anxiety, stress or depression. So that's obviously something I'm, I'm sure that you're looking at that is of concern. I know also the Team Jersey programme was, was kind of meant to remedy morale issues and bring people together, but the engagement in health was was really quite low. So what ways are you looking at, um, perhaps different ways of um, turning things around in that respect? Uh, many, many different ways, and we've had to adapt. Um, so I think the Team Jersey initiative was a good initiative to start to get underneath some of the historical cultural challenges we've had. Um, across the services and departments. In addition to that, um, there is a pandemic context. So um, in some of our departments and some of our services, there is clearly what we would uh, describe as trauma. And uh, we have to have trauma-informed support for those practitioners because they've dealt with traumatic situations, quite tragic situations with some of our patients, um, you know, where we've not had a good outcome. Does that mean kind of counselling, that sort of thing? Yeah, very, very, um, you know, very extensive um, counselling and support and and a very uh, formalised method of support uh, with lots of different uh, approaches for that. Um, We've tried initiatives that are called Schwartz Rounds, where you 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 have time with the team post-event. We do TRIM initiatives, which again is looking at the trauma impact that practitioners are facing. But then there's a broader wellbeing piece. And for me... Um, one of the most simple things that we realised in, in the time of the pandemic was um, staff well-being, physical movement, um, you know, going and, and you see some of those videos that I think people probably got tired of, but they meant a lot to our staff where uh, people will start at the beginning of their shift with physical movement. They will do it to a song. Um, and uh, it, it was a really galvanising, bringing together part of the workforce is very important. We've had to build on that and we need to do more to build on that so that we're about to go into um, a well-being week and that looks at all sorts of physical support, yoga, um, Pilates, support, Zumba, you know, different sporting initiatives for our workforce as well as offering counselling support, the more complex um, side of things with those other things that I mentioned, Trim and Schwartz Rounds. But then generally, um, we need much more for staff well-being and I think for me, the environment is, is probably one of our, our key 
uh, enablers there and that that's not great um, because uh, at times throughout the pandemic and previously our staff don't have anywhere to eat you know it, it's been difficult to socially distance in in the hospital as it is and so staff have been taking breaks in stairwells in in areas where they've been able to try and grab time and i i'm sure that all those factors have really contributed to the need to really drive a different well-being agenda for healthcare. What we think healthcare workers needed to support well-being before the pandemic is really different post-pandemic. It's demonstrated that we have to take care of our workers. Absolutely. Just looking at um, some of the difficulties that have been faced by staff and, and some of these cultural issues that you know may well be historic, but as we've acknowledged, a, a have been pervasive in the organisation. What concerns do you have given that the uh, Jersey often has a lot of UK-based staff, NHS staff, agency staff? What, what concerns do you have that that might um, impact on, on recruitment through word of mouth, that type of thing? And um, We've heard of agency staff that have returned and, and have told their colleagues you know, not to touch Jersey as a result of this. So that must be of concern. So, so I think any organisation's reputation is, is a big thing. We actually attract a lot of people to Jersey because they've had good experiences. And, and we see... Um, when you get a critical appointment, you, you recruit um, you know, a key position and you often get staff who follow. Um, and so it, it's really important. It's important that people recognise that Jersey is a, a good health and care system. I think uh, for us, the, the, the key focus has to be around how we address some of the core recruitment challenges that we have. We are part of a global workforce recruitment initiative. You know, healthcare is a global business. We have people trained predominantly from the UK and most of our staff come from the NHS actually and we're obviously regulated by all of the professional bodies in the UK, doctors, nurses, social workers, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, they are all UK facing and our standards of care and compliance is, is based on UK uh, guidance from the Royal Colleges and NICE so we're never going to get away from the UK system I think we have to embrace that um, but we do need to compete in the global market and theatres, uh, radiography, uh, we know in orthodontics, there are key pressure points where these professionals could work anywhere in the world, Australia, Europe, America, Canada, Jersey. And so we've got to make our offer to recruit to these positions attractive. We've got to make Jersey different. They've got to see a good career progress. And I think that that is probably where Previously, um, we've not had good foresight in thinking about our workforce planning and what we do to progress staff and to actually attract staff in the long term. So the, the, getting a good workforce plan is, is an absolute focus for us around the, the new hospital and, of course, the Jersey Care model. What, what incentives do we have right now to draw people to Jersey? Obviously, we've spoken at length and states members right this very moment are talking about all the issues with our ageing current hospital. So aside from just extremely high salaries, I mean, do we have any particular draws? Well, we, we do. I mean, one of the things that um, is, is quite good about the Jersey healthcare system is that there is good support for uh, continued professional development. So you get a much more generous offer of um, extending your skills than you would get in the UK. There's better funding for courses. There's better. We, we have broader trained staff uh, across many of our disciplines. There, there's good funding in that domain. I, I think what we've seen from the BeHerd survey and what we feel when you get underneath um, some of the issues that we have is one of the great successes of Jersey is that we've been able to retain staff for a long, long period. And in many healthcare jurisdictions, that would be hugely successful. So somebody staying as a ward sister for 20 years 
is fantastic. You get good continuity, a legacy, great understanding of the system. But if you're the deputy sister and the senior staff nurse and you're working in that environment and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, that can be really frustrating. And I, I think we have that challenge in Jersey because we've had very long-standing senior leaders in, in positions and there hasn't been as much movement as what I think we need. And so people can be trained and they get all these you know, good levels of accreditation and, and uh, new skills, but they often find it difficult to progress because there's, there's nowhere to progress to. But obviously these senior positions are finite, so... Do you but, just create extra but, positions? So, so, so that's where I think we've got to think differently because actually all of that experience, all of that learning that you have from these individuals who, who've stuck with our system, who we've got to be really grateful for, that they've kept the system going and they've you know been able to run the services, they've got a huge role to play in how they develop the next person and the next person and the next person. And some of our changes that we want through the Jersey Care model give us that opportunity. They give people the opportunity to step into different roles in different settings and to have that ability to think about their promotion, their progression and their career. And I, I think that's a really good thing for a health and care system. In addition, you know, the new facility that we would have in, in the future in the, the new hospital also adds a, a, a huge component then in terms of that attractiveness about the setting that you're going to be working in. So there's a lot to be optimistic about, but we, we just need to start getting that workforce plan aligned to some of these great strategic things that we're involved with. I think that gives us a good opportunity to turn to the topic of leaders and leadership generally. Um, one thing that we need good leaders for is when things go wrong. In the uh, theatre services review, just to return to that, it said 184 incidents were reported for theatres between January 2019 and April 2021, um, the highest number relating to treatments and procedures. When the reviewer spoke to staff about this, some told him that they would not report something going wrong. The main reason, I'm quoting from this, uh, was the lack of feedback and fear of being blamed, while some said they were unaware of who they were supposed to report to. So that's quite concerning, isn't it, that they don't feel that they've got that confidence to be able to speak to their leaders. Yeah, so, so in any healthcare system, you have to have effective um, raising of concerns. You have to have good escalation in how you report an incident. And the volume of incident reporting is often um, not the barometer you look at. Over-reporting over can be a really, really good thing. Um, and under-reporting can be a really bad thing. The most important thing is that you're learning um, and that is one of the things that we expected that we would need to improve on because we feel that that is a continuous part of any health and care system. So for us, we've had to introduce new things to make sure that staff are aware that when they, they, there is a problem, uh, you know, there's a, a procedure that has needed to be changed in some way in terms of equipment or whatever it would be, a pathway, that there is a process for them to raise a concern and there's a process for them to have feedback about that. That's why we've had to change our structure. We've had to make sure there is new, uh, new roles around clinical leadership. We've got a dedicated doctor who's now providing that role, um, a dedicated nurse who is now working within that quality and governance arrangement to make sure there is continued learning, the safety huddles that we've had to introduce in the department. And, and that, is the, that is how you start to establish good improvement and continuous learning and improvement in an environment. So just to put it into context for people who don't work in the hospital, if I was a nurse and I'd seen something I thought was a bit wrong, um, 
what would I do? Who do I speak to? And what happens next? So if you're a nurse and you, you think something is wrong, you depending on the severity of something that's going wrong, depends on your on your reaction. So you're there as the patient advocate. And if you feel something is, is, is not right, you have a duty of care and your code of conduct to raise that concern immediately with the colleagues around you. So that could be the doctor, another nurse, other professionals. And, and you must do that. And staff must feel able to do that. And believe me, they do do that. Um, we have many um, incidents where staff will absolutely call out something that they're not comfortable with. Where it's a, a situation where there, there is, isn't believed to be harm, but the process isn't quite right, and there could be uh, a, a miss in some way, then that requires a more controlled learning uh, reporting and something that needs to be picked up probably post-event. So it depends on the severity, but all staff... In, in their professional code of con- conduct are absolutely aware of what they should be doing to make sure that they are keeping the patient safe. Brilliant. Um, so just uh, looking at the report, it, it made 11 pages of recommendations. Um, six and a half were dedicated to leadership itself. Mm-hmm. And you've emphasised you know, how important that is. Mm-hmm. It says managers need to be visible and provide an authoritative but caring presence. So uh, as a leader yourself, can you kind of tell us, you know, what does a good manager look like? And what, sh- what should um, those who might not be living up to that standard um, be thinking about doing to change their attitudes? Yeah, so, so I think there's often a language um, sort of complication here when we describe manager Um, and there's a lot of focus on managers in in the healthcare system here in Jersey and we've worked hard over the last few years to make sure that we switch from administrative management to clinical and professional leadership and management because we believe passionately and most healthcare systems are striving for this that if you have clinicians and professionals in leadership positions their management of the service is often more effective. And so our focus has been on how we build clinical professional leadership, which provides management function. So in this instance, we've absolutely focused on how do we build on what, what is need what is clearly needed from the report in terms of that clinical professional leadership. So we've had dedicated roles developed and we've got those people uh, in post. They do need support from the more business side of things. And so we, we have clear um, what we call a task and finish group that we have every two weeks where we all come together from the executive right the way down to the floor where we look at our improvement requirements many of those things highlighted within the report and where are we with the journey on that so some of that will fall to uh, the nurse lead some of it will fall to the doctor some of it might fall to the business manager and then myself the medical director the chief nurse and the director general are also part of that forum because we wanted to have Uh, very close working between the most senior executive leadership through to senior management right the way down then to the floor to make sure you've you've got closeness to it Um, and we're starting to see some good progress in that so that that isn't going to sort some of the recruitment challenges overnight that's a, a, a longer term problem but some of the more functional requirements the process improvements the reporting improvements the quality and safety related improvements, we're making really good progress in that, that area and that's exactly what we, we're trying to do. Visible leadership's important. It's a big organisation. I think, um, you know, I could walk around it every single day and I can guarantee you probably someone would say, I've never seen it, I didn't see him. <laughs> I, don't I'm not, I don't know what he looks like. Um, and I've had that in the last 26 years of my career, um, you know, from a nurse to a manager to a director. Uh, it's, it's a complex environment to work in. 
I think it's really important you do spend the time. And, and every Monday we, we have clinical site walk around. Uh, we have drop-ins. Uh, you know, we can walk to areas anytime we want to. We've got access to all areas. So we, we, do, we schedule that regularly as, as part of um, our, our daily routine as executive leaders. And obviously our clinical leaders we've just put into these new roles. They're there all the time. They're based in the theatre department now. I think a lot of the uh, improvements you've, you've mentioned are quite kind of high level, a lot of procedural as well. But um, one of the things that kind of comes out of the report itself is, you know, about feedback, the, the interpersonal mm. relationships, both positive and negative. It, it highlights that perhaps, you know, staff need a bit more of a pat on the back as a morale raising measure. But likewise, perhaps there could be a bit more diplomacy in, in delivering negative feedback. So, I mean, how are you training staff to to manage those kind of requirements? I mean, what what do you say to someone about their their um, sort of leadership style? Yeah. Um, so p- uh, people adopt different leadership styles. I think for me, it's really important that our approach to leadership is leadership with compassion um, and uh, and leadership with integrity, because I think it as it, it can be a very difficult conversation you need to have with somebody, um, and I've had to have lots of those difficult conversations. Um, but providing that you do it with integrity and transparency and open, you're open and honest, I think you often get to a better outcome and you often might not have a member of staff who's happy with what you're telling them, but they will respect what you're telling them in the way that you're telling them. So our leaders do need support and training in that. We've got lots of support wrapped in. We've got the Faculty of uh, Medical Leadership helping us uh, with support for some of our doctors. What um, does that entail? Is that kind of workshops? or? How yeah, and, 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 you know, tactics in terms of how you manage really complex situations. Uh, doctor, doctors don't like being managed <laughs> um, and doctors don't like managing each other. And we don't particularly want them to in that way. We want them to work together in a you know a much more interprofessional way um, that is very lean and that isn't requiring draconian measures that's not the approach that we would want really so I I think it it is about you know nurturing that that culture of how you want decision making deployed I I do you know I've been here for four years and it it, it did strike me that there is a a real draw on hierarchy in Jersey there was a very strong hierarchical chain of command you know you had to ask somebody for permission you couldn't seek to do something yourself a lot of our routine things that would be routine to me felt to be quite complicated and required lots of different people giving a nod Um, and some of those people in quite you know senior quite powerful positions that 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 is not the leadership style that we want as, as an executive team in health we want devolved leadership we want um, you know, our teams to be self-leading and, and empowered to do so. We want assurance that they're doing what they should be doing for the good outcomes of our patients and that they're, they're working effectively. We're accountable for public expenditure at the end of the day. But our most important thing is that people are in a happy workplace and they're providing good patient care. And so we, we need to harness where we're getting good success and we are having pockets of good success and how that leadership can be spread broader throughout throughout the workforce. Some areas are more challenging than others, I would say, in terms of how we approach that leadership challenge. There's, there's been a huge change kind of management programme, um, as you've rightly uh, highlighted there. How do you manage some of the tensions um, between, you know, some some people or staff potentially thinking this is NHS versus Jersey's old way? You've yeah, kind of touched a little bit so on it, Jersey's it, former yeah, way of doing it, it's things. It's a fascinating thing for me. It, it feels that there is a, a very strange relationship with the NHS um, and it's a complex relationship. So 
Our, our system is, is inevitably uh, involved in the NHS. We use the NHS supply chain um, for our, our stock, our equipment, our drugs. Um, we obviously the vaccination program. Um, as I mentioned, nearly all of our staff have come from the UK. Most of them have come from the UK. Even people who are not from the UK but have relocated to the UK and then come to Jersey. Um, they all of our training schools are with the UK. The deaneries, um, all our regulatory functions are with the UK and the Royal Colleges um, and the professional bodies. And I, and I do think. Um, we, we are not going, we wouldn't want to not be part of that. Having junior doctors trained in Jersey and nurses trained in Jersey is fantastic. And I don't know any other jurisdiction of 100,000 people that has that. So um, we want to keep that. But that doesn't mean that our organisation has to be like the NHS. And I've always felt that the benefit we have is that we're able to look at what's happening in the UK and in the NHS and beyond and look at what's good and what we might want to do and what's not so good, and we absolutely wouldn't want to do. And there's an awful lot that we don't do. Um, and there's a lot that I would never want us to do, because I think that there are parts of the NHS system that clearly aren't working, um, and that are having to change quite radically. I, I feel that in Jersey, we've got the unique op uh, opportunity and ability to really harness the good, but to do it in our own way. So we're not trying to NHSify the system. Um, we're not going to, we don't have the same constitutional standards and we don't have the same framework and our services aren't provided in the same way. There's a, a different island context. Um, but we, we want to keep our links with the UK and we don't want to lose those educational and that workforce flow. I think that's really important for us. You said that you want to harness all the best bits of Jersey while accepting the other the parts of um, the NHS. What are those best bits? Obviously, our systems are very different. There's been a lot of discussion recently around primary care, for example. Mm, so mm. so I, I think there's so much good about this system and so much that uh, the UK can learn from us, actually. Uh, for me, uh, you look at some of the things that happen in Jersey, the, the, the strength of, of the voluntary sector is incredible. Uh, some of the services provided by our partners in both mental health, physical health, um, disability support is is brilliant um, and they're things that you often don't have access to in in the mainland I have to say from from my experience there I actually think our primary care system and our GPs are a real strength to Jersey uh, and I think that is evidenced in what we do I think they've really demonstrated in the pandemic that having a familiar GP and somebody who who knows you and understands you gives good continuity of care is is incredibly important there's so much evidence to say if you're seeing a locum GP and it's three weeks, weeks between your appointment and it's a different GP every single time, you're not going to get as good an outcome. And I think Jersey, whilst we've got some challenges at the moment, generally is in a better position than the UK in terms of that continuity. And we see that in our indicators. So in our A&E department, we've had less than 3% growth this year. Is a bit pandemic impacted, probably, but that's still a very good position. And if you compare that to UK, they're seeing nearly 10% growth in some of the A&E departments there. And I think that's because people have no access to their GPs and they are simply flooding to the doors of A&E. I, I think our GPs are doing a good job in stopping that happening. They're also doing a really good job in managing our long-term conditions because we're not seeing high admission rates to the general hospital. We're less than 3% growth there as well, um, and that's good. And then we are also seeing quite a low conversion rate from people attending our A&E requiring admission, 
which gives you an indication that you're probably getting really good community-based care that is keeping on top of people's long-term conditions and their overall care needs. I think there's more we can do, and I think GPs do need more support, and we need to start thinking about services in the hospital that can support GPs in a different way, quicker access to diagnostics, and connecting the system a bit better. But there are many elements here that um, I think are are in a a much better position than, than the UK. I don't think we could uh, conclude without turning to uh, the topic of the hospital itself. Um, Just again, this comes from the report, um, the theatre services report, but um, it looked at the efficiency of theatres overall and Mm. um, their usage. One of the things I wanted to point out was that at the time of the review, it was noted that several of the allocated private patient lists were underbooked. And it reports that one private surgeon was uh, using his own private time to carry out unpaid work operating on public patients. So we've got um, a project currently with the new hospital that will massively increase the private patient service. So where did that come from? Was that a request from hospital management? Um, you know, where was the, um, the, the kind of logic behind that, I suppose? So, so there's been a lot of change with um, the public-private arrangement in, um, in care in Jersey, in secondary care in Jersey, in the hospital. And one of the things that we've been absolutely focused on, and it's been a ministerial priority um, for the health minister, we, we've always been embracing a pr- private practice in Jersey, and I think we have to be. A good proportion of the islanders are insured, and that's connected to employment here, and that's always going to be, and I think we're always going to have that need, and that can be a really good thing for a health and care system. The thing we don't want to happen is we don't want there to be a, a disproportionate offer between the public-private arrangement. So there is a period of time where you go beyond waiting that then becomes, um, I guess, unpalatable in a public-private arrangement. So if you can have a procedure within two weeks privately, but it will take you two years publicly, that differential is too long. And we, 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 we can't have that in Jersey. And so we've had to look at how we make sure that we protect public time so that we get down the public weight and that we offer a reasonable private practice pathway time as well. And that, that's been challenging in the pandemic, uh, I have to say, to, to get that, especially in the context of backlog. Um, but we are working with our clinicians around that. We've tried different things. We've tried separate slots dedicated to private and public. We've previously had blended. We've had some public, some private. And we're continuing to work through how we get those pathways right. The, the thing we're really clear about is the principles. We want both pathways. We think islanders want both pathways, but we don't want both pathways to have such disproportionate time between them. And so we've, that's the, the key area of focus here. And that, that is really what the, um, the report from Felix has highlighted. Slightly pandemic adjusted, I would say, because uh, every time we, we, we've obviously had three waves here thus far, and all of those waves have impacted on the way we would ordinarily do both public and private practice. In terms of expanding the private um, mm. uh, service um, so greatly with the new hospital, was that a clinician-driven uh, decision or was that a, a political one? Where did that uh, sort of idea come from? So that's the entire specification for the new hospital is, is clinically, professionally driven. So all of the user groups have, have focused on what's required. They've all, all of our, our staff have been involved in that. And um, it's an, uh, an estimate of, the, of the, what's likely to be the, the growth element of the pathway. 
Um, that doesn't mean that the unit has to be dedicated for that function. We could use the unit in, in what way demand is telling us to. And I think if there's one thing for me, COVID has shown us is actually, you know, we have to be adaptable and clinical environments might need to change. And so guarantee of public private activity is changeable um, depending on what your unscheduled need is, is showing. So um, that, that's what's driven it, really, is, is our capacity assessment of, of what those pathways will be. Uh, it, it is a growing uh, you know, pathway, and there is still significant demand in Jersey. We think there's probably demand that is actually leaving Jersey to have the pathway that probably could have that within the island. And, and finally, just looking at the current hospital itself, we've heard so many stories of um, how the current building is not up to scratch and why it's just so vital that a, a new building comes as, as soon as possible. What would be your kind of, I suppose, message to states members right right now who are debating the project? I, th- I think I'll let the democratic process uh, d- determine that. And I, I, I trust in uh, the debate. Obviously, I think uh, both myself and the um, senior leadership, Mr Armstrong, uh, Rose, the chief nurse, and, and our director general, we've been really clear. Um, we think the case for change is absolutely clear. Uh, we need a new hospital for our staff. Uh, it is a difficult work environment. Uh, it's constantly requiring a lot of time, attention and support, and it's not optimum for our staff. Um, and we think our staff need uh, a better environment. And we think we found, obviously, the right solution. And um, we've got good momentum. We've had good engagement. Um, and we're in a really good position where I think staff are excited about the prospect of uh, a, you know, a brand new facility and what that could bring, really, for Jersey. So, uh, yeah, we're... We're hoping, obviously, for a positive outcome. Thank you, Rob Sainsbury. Express will be continuing to follow the twists and turns in the hospital debate and the efforts to address wider issues within the health service. Follow bailiwickexpress.com for the latest updates. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and share. It all helps. The title track was I Shift My Weight by Luno. More next week from me, Fiona Potney, and the Bailiwick Express team.